I didn't think that I was going to do cesareans. I thought I was just going to do vaginal births and just kind of have that and have somebody else back me up for cesareans. Uh, and during my second year OB rotation, I had a OBGYN, great old, crusty old OBGYN, hand me the knife and say, hey, you're doing this case. And I was totally unprepared and said, oh, no, 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 I don't, I, I don't want to do this. And uh, he said, no, you may have to do this someday. Um, and little did he know, and little did I know that uh, after that, I thought, yeah, I want to be, you know, comprehensive FMOB and be able to do, you know, whatever my patient needs. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tanning. Welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show for the first time. I am very happy to be bringing you this conversation with a real live family medicine residency program director, Dr. Levi Sundermeyer, and during application and interview season, no less. How about that? What I'm saying is this is a hot scoop, people. Listen up. This was actually his idea to be a guest on the show, and he heard about one of his interns Colleen Marr being on the show a few episodes back and thought it would be cool for the Primary Care Podcast listeners to hear from a program director. So super awesome that we can make this happen. Um, I got a couple of side notes here before we get started. I apologize for the tardiness of this episode. This was actually going to be the episode that was going to be for November. And my early October episode guest had to postpone because of a COVID exposure. So hopefully we'll be able to get them back on the schedule sometime and make it happen sometime soon. Second side note is just my standard call to all of you to not be shy about leaving a comment or a rating of the podcast on whatever listening platform you use. I personally, and of course the artificial intelligence algorithm. Thank you kindly for doing that and pumping us up to the top of the charts. Okay, I had a great time with Dr. Sundermeyer. We chatted in person in his cozy office right after he had performed a C-section on a patient. So it was a busy day. Um, he is the program director for the Health One Family Residency, sorry, Family Medicine Residency Program on the outskirts of Denver, Colorado. And he's a really cool guy that I thought you all would quite enjoy his insights and his candor on his life and work in many varied fields within family medicine. Um, to that point, we discuss a lot of different things. We discuss his fellowship training in obstetrics through family medicine residency. We discuss being an active duty military physician for 23 years. Thank you for your service. Um, and in that discussion, we talk about how that relates to occupational medicine and some conflicts that can come up in that field. We talk about his time as, quote unquote, just a faculty at a different family medicine residency, as well as obstetrics fellowship director there. 
And the, the big uh, meat of our discussion is talking about his current position right now, being program director. We talk about the job of a program director. And a lot of our discussion is focused on the application and interview and residency selection process. So we talked about what he looks for in reviewing residency applications, including experiences, personal statement, demographics, any red flags. We talked about what he considers to be red flags versus what maybe other program directors uh, or selection committee members might think of as red flags. We talk about what the interview process looks like from his perspective, including a full list of things that programs cannot ask the applicant about and is important to know before entering into that uh, situation. We talk about the ranking and matching process from the side of the program, or should say from the perspective of the program and program director. And then we get into a little discussion about the transition from fourth-year med student to first-year resident. So I know a lot here was uh, discussed, and uh, a lot of the topics that we discuss is prevalent on a lot of medical students' minds, really, no matter where you are in the process. So it being a salient topic, I hope that I did an okay job at guiding the conversation into a direction that allowed Dr. Sundermeyer to give his perspective in a way that was interesting and useful to you listeners. Um, on that note, uh, he is kind of, uh, he's pretty clear about a couple of big takeaway points that I think I should foreshadow right now. And one is that everything he's talking about today is solely from his perspective as one program director at one program in family medicine. And so there are times when he's speaking more generally, but overall, this is his personal thoughts on the topics that we discussed today. Another thing I want to mention now is just the concept of being genuine. It came up a lot in our discussion. Basically, my takeaway is that genuineness and being genuine is the really the best thing you can do for yourself in this whole residency application process and, of course, in life in general. So I'll take that as a good reminder for us all to... Take a breath and be as genuine as possible in our interactions with ourselves, with others, especially through stressful and trying times. One more thing in the show notes, I will put in the show notes in the podcast player app, two links to videos that we discuss kind of deep into the podcast about the matching process and about the how the algorithm works. Uh, for the NRMP, so you can feel free to click on those and check them out. All right, with that, let's get to the episode. I really can't say enough about how lovely it was to sit down and chat for, geez, about an hour and 40 about the life of a family medicine program director with Dr. Levi Sundermeyer. Dr. Sundermeyer, welcome to the Primary Care Podcast. Thanks for being on. Cool. Thanks, Ross. Appreciate you having me on. 
Yeah, no problem. Uh, we're both uh, busy people. It's good to get this in during interview and application season. Absolutely. Uh, so that's just a, a miracle uh, in and of itself. But we scheduled it well in advance, so I'm glad to be here finally. And I want to know about you and your background and tell the, uh, the listeners uh, your one-liner and, and where you come from. Yeah, so uh, my name is Levi Sundermeyer. And uh, I was raised in St. Louis, uh, graduated high school from there, um, huge Cardinals and Blues fan, uh, bleed St. Louis sports. Nice. Um, went to college, small school in Kansas City called Mid-American Nazarene University, mm-hmm. and then went to University of Kansas for medical school. Very cool. So you... Um did all your childhood essentially in uh, St. Louis? Yep, all of it. Did you have uh, people in medicine in your family? No, I'm the first one, and uh, it was uh, I uh, going through high school. I thought I'd be an engineer. I Got really it. loved math and science, physics and chemistry, my favorite two subjects. Nice. And uh, so I just assumed I had to be a an engineer because of that. Mm-hmm. And I uh, got to my first year of college and. Uh, I had gone on a mission trip with my church, actually, okay. and uh, watched a uh, physician taking care of the homeless, and uh, something clicked. And I said, that's that's what I'm going to do. So Very cool. That's kind of where that came from. Yeah, that's awesome to just see it in you know real life, people helping other people, which is basically just what medicine is. Yeah. Um, awesome. So then you went to medical school. You picked a specialty. How did you decide on family medicine? So I rotated with a family doc, community doc, um, during my third year. Uh, my wife and I actually also worked at that office, uh, mm-hmm. doing front office stuff, and rotated with him and said, this is the kind of doctor I want to be, the kind of doctor that does everything, takes care of kids, takes care of adults, does procedures, and goes and delivers his own babies. And I said, that's the doctor I want to be. So I kind of came into med school thinking I wanted to do family, and that third year rotation just solidified it. That's awesome. Um, that's kind of where I'm coming from, too. I just like doing it all, seeing it all. Yeah, that's called um, family medicine, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting, too, because you went on to do an OB fellowship. Is that right? I did, yep. Um, where I think you know that some people are drawn to family medicine, and they want to do a lot of OB in their practice. And that sounds like that's where you were at. Um, some people are like, I want to do everything except OB. <laughs> that's kind of the majority these days, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, obstetrics was integral in family medicine. So the family doctors, the practice of family medicine started back in, I want to say it was the fifties. Uh, I may be wrong with that. It might've been the sixties, mm-hmm. uh, as a specialty. And, um, it started as the small town doc who would do everything, who would do minor surgeries, who would uh, be in the hospital and do hospital rounds, um, would do actually some OR cases like lap, uh, not laparoscopic, but, uh, you know, appies and coles and, and hernias and you know minor things like that in yeah. a small town mm-hmm. where there were no uh, specialists, there were no obstetricians and there were no surgeons and things like that. And um, in the beginning days, obstetrics... Um, was uh, integral in that. And so 50% of family docs in those early days did obstetrics. So it was integral in our specialty. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of just kind of gone downhill from there. Mm-hmm. Till today, it's probably about 10% of family docs 
uh, delivering babies. Yeah, it's interesting because I guess uh, we, I, we we can get to this a little bit later, but um, just having more family docs in uh, more big cities, then less of them are going to be in that it's position where they're the only right. doc in a small town or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay, so you um, did your residency in family medicine. Did you have any um, big takeaways from your residency time? Um, I didn't think that I was going to do cesareans. Mm -hmm. I thought I was just going to do vaginal births and just kind of have that and have somebody else back me up for cesareans. Uh, And during my second year OB rotation, I had a OBGYN, great old, crusty old OBGYN, hand me the knife and say, hey, you're doing this case. And I was totally unprepared and said, oh, no, 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 I don't don't, want to do this. Right. And uh, he said, no, you may have to do this someday. Um, and little did he know, and little did I know that uh, after that, I thought, yeah, I want to be, you know, comprehensive FMOB and be able to do, you know, whatever my patient needs. Very cool. Yeah, I've heard you talk uh, um, just previously about really enjoying doing surgery. Is it kind of comes from that mm-hmm. experience, so, you know, starting from that, that time. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so you said you didn't envision doing cesareans, but now that's kind of a big part of your practice. Is that right? It's not a big part. No. Um, I, uh, did it. So I did my fellowship. So I I finished residency, went out and practiced for three years in the air force Mm -hmm. and then went and did my fellowship, one year fellowship. And then from then on, I've been doing cesareans as part of my practice. So it's certainly, it's a small piece of the practice. I'd still much rather my patients have a vaginal birth um, at the end of the day, I want a healthy mom and a healthy baby. Uh, and if we can get a vaginal birth out of that, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, and do my own cesareans plus cover for my partners who don't do them. Right. Right. Maybe it's just on my mind cause you just came from a cesarean <laughs> section. Right. I was doing one this here. morning. Yeah. That's right. Um, okay. Um, very cool. Um, so you mentioned being in the air force as a physician for three years. Actually, I did uh, 23 years okay, and uh, just retired last year. Wow. So I did 10 years on active duty. I did residency on active duty. Yeah. I did that first three years up in Alaska. Mm-hmm. Uh, came down and did my fellowship in Spokane, Washington, and then um, finished up with teaching at a Air Force residency. Uh, it was my first kind of experience teaching uh, for three years in Florida. Very cool. What is the big differences that maybe the layperson or average person or my naive self wouldn't know about um, being a physician in the military versus a civilian? The, the biggest difference is as a military physician, you are an occupational medicine physician. Um, and so you have that dueling role of, uh, if you're sitting in front of me as a patient, I'm your doctor, mm-hmm. but I'm also uh, the Air Force's doctor. Uh, so I'm also an occupational medicine physician. So balancing those two things out, and sometimes those things are in conflict. Um what maybe I think of as the altruistic thing to do for you, but also I'm being paid by the Air Force to be the occupational medicine doc, make sure that you're deployable, make sure that you can actually do your job, uh, and make sure that we can actually retain you in the Air Force all at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it adds that uh, uh, that very important occupational medicine piece. Yeah, that's interesting. And you say that that's not usually something that comes into play in a lot of just civilian family docs lives. You can certainly do occupational medicine as a family doc. Yeah. Uh, And it's one of those things I tell residents, you probably don't want to dabble in occupational medicine. You probably either want to do it or don't do it. Uh, It can be a very rewarding career. I enjoy occupational medicine, uh, but it's a little different than being a primary care doc. As a primary care doc, you come in, my sole responsibility to you... um, 
is to take care of you in all your medical conditions. Mm-hmm. As an occupational medicine doc, um, I'm answering to somebody else. I'm answering to a company. I'm answering to the government, answering to somebody else. Yeah. So there's, uh, I imagine there could be a little conflicts of interest there or just conflicts. There can, there can be. And especially if you're doing solely occupational medicine, I'm not your doctor. Mm-hmm. I'm not taking care of your medical problems. I'm reviewing notes from specialists. I may be reviewing notes from your primary care doc and I am a family doc, mm-hmm. but I'm not your doctor. Right. So it's one of those things to kind of, um, it's a little bit, um, sometimes hard, hard pill to swallow sometimes when people first get into or get exposed to it where, uh, again, that, that whole philosophy of I'm, I'm not your doctor. I'm the company doc. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough, especially when you've been trained for so many years in right. the world of I'm your doctor. Yep, yeah. exactly. And the, and the altruistic piece. I mean, you know, the first, you got first do no harm, you've got um, justice and benefic- beneficence and non non malfeasance, you know, all those things we learn sure. about, the ethical yeah. principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those still apply, certainly. But my first job is not necessarily towards you as the patient sitting in front of me. So. And that being said, again, as an Air Force doc, as, as an active duty physician, mm-hmm. um, I have both roles at right. the same time. Sometimes I have to take one hat off and put the other hat on. Right. Do you have any examples of a time that was difficult for you to navigate that? Um, I can remember one uh, young troop early on who had lied to get into the Air Force and said he didn't have asthma. Mm-hmm. And then um, when it came up to a time for deployment disclosed to me that he had asthma and actually was pretty significant. Um, and so as a doc, I need to take care of, I need to prescribe him meds. Right. But I also have a responsibility to my employer, to the United States government, to the air force to say, uh, this makes you non-deployable. Um, at least at, at that time it did. Right. And by the way, um, I'm going to have to refer this to your commander cause you lied to get into the air force. And that person ended up getting separated from the air force actually. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard. That sounds really tough. Yeah, it is. Especially because that person obviously wanted to be there. They did. Yeah. You know, they lied, and you know, just so they could get into the Air Force, and and now they're at a different crossroads that they thought they would be. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned teaching, mm-hmm. um, being a faculty at a residency, and then I, you've also been a fellowship director for uh, the obstetrics fellowship. Yeah. Is that right? So I started as a faculty in 2008, worked at Eglin Air Force Base for three years as a faculty, mm-hmm. uh, just as just a faculty. Okay. I ran our OB track. I was also flight commander for a couple for a couple of years, which means I ran the whole clinic, mm-hmm. uh, which was a, a really good leadership leadership experience. And then I went to uh, Fort Worth, John Peter Smith uh, Family Medicine Residency for eight and a half years. Okay. First four and a half, I was, uh, I would say, just a faculty, okay, which was good. Um, developed um, an amazing mentor there. Uh, Dave McRae is a very close friend and mentor of mine, was the fellowship director at the time. Okay. And then he left um, and left me in charge. So I got to run the fellowship for five years. Nice. Uh, which was a great experience. Awesome. So you were kind of running the OB track, which is preparing residents who are interested in Mm -hmm. doing more obstetrics after residency. Uh, And then you were actually running the obstetrics after residency portion of their training as well. Absolutely. Um, Did you approach each of those with a different mindset or a different philosophy on teaching? How, how How are those different? That's a great question. So when I was just a faculty 
uh, as the OB, you know, OB person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, leading that, um, it was really just developing OB for just the residents. Right. And then when you get into that role as a fellowship director, I mean, I was primarily responsible for the education of anywhere from uh, 11 to 12 fellows at any one time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really kind of moved away from kind of being a family doc uh, to being a obstetric, obstetrician and an obstetrics teacher for, for five years. Uh, and I certainly missed the full spectrum family medicine part during that time. Yeah. Twelve uh, fellowship, uh, 12 fellows, fellows yeah. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So at that residency, we integrated the fellowship uh, into third and fourth year. So it wasn't an add-on after third year. Oh, okay. Uh, they actually committed to a four-year residency. Interesting. So at any one time, I'd have six third years and six fourth years. Okay. So yeah, 12 fellows at any one time. Cool. Um, and that fellowship, is that ACGME approved um, somebody, I guess, once told me that it's not because of duty hours issues and that you can't really guarantee a maximum amount of duty hours for an OB fellowship. Thus, it's not technically an ACGME fellowship, but right. it's still obviously a board certified so thing you can be. It's not a board certification. It's not okay. ACGME. What you're looking for is accredited. Okay. Uh, and so ACGME accredited fellowships are geriatrics, sports medicine, Things like adolescent fellowships, mm-hmm. palliative care fellowships. Addiction there are med. there are a number addiction medicine. I think uh, you can get a Sleep actually med, what's maybe. called you, it's called a CAQ, a certificate of added qualification, and oh, that's okay. a, a specific ACGME recognition. Mm-hmm. So there are many non ACGME recognized fellowships, and so OB fellowship is by far the most common. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's um, oh gosh. There's all kinds of other, you know, there's headache fellowships, there's rural fellowships. Most mm. of those are not ACGME accredited. It's just extra training that you're getting. Okay. So you're basically getting a, I used to tell my, my fellows, I mean, you're getting a whole lot more than this, but it all kind of boils down to you're getting a piece of paper that says you did a fellowship and you're getting a procedure log to mm. turn into your hospital to say, yeah, I can do these things. Okay. Cool. Um all right, so we talked about being a fellowship director, and I think uh, most people are probably tuning in to hear about uh, hear from you the with regards to, to <laughs> you being uh, the program director of a family medicine residency. Um, it's the Health One residency in Colorado, um, and you've been program director. This is your second year yep. in the 18 job? 18 months, yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so what brought you here? Why did you decide on uh, being a program director? So I really enjoyed, we loved Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, really loved my previous job. So I really, we weren't looking to move. Um, it's long, circuitous route. But the bottom line is um, a lot of these things happen through networking. Uh, and this was absolutely a networking kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I was being courted for a program director job elsewhere. That didn't pan out. And the other person put my name in here. Uh, and I got contacted by Dr. Vidlock, actually. Uh, okay, previous the, uh, guest on the show. Previous guest on the show, and she was the previous program director here. Yeah. And uh, just asking, would I consider the job here? And it, it is in Denver, Colorado. So that at least opened the door for me to even think maybe, because uh, I wasn't looking for a job. Right. Okay, so you basically... Uh just it kind of fell into your lap, it sounds like, a little bit. It did. Or at least initially. It did. And a lot of, and you'll find a lot of jobs, uh, and a lot of the good jobs are not advertised for mm-hmm. and come through networking. 
Yeah. So don't ever close the door on networking. Right. Um, keep your network broad, keep in contact with people, you know, and things like that. It's really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely that, that aspect of just life. Is it, it's such a life thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, and it's something I've learned for sure. I, I used to be pretty bad at it in my, <laughs> as a younger lad in my early twenties, I would, um, it's just out of laziness or shyness or, or, or all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something that you can actually grow to enjoy because it opens up opportunities for it you. It absolutely just, does. And you meet new people. And My last three jobs have come through um, networking. Awesome. So, well, that's a good endorsement. Yeah. Um, okay, so what what is a program director? What do they do? They do some f- just faculty stuff, as you called it earlier, <laughs> where they're precepting residents, mm-hmm. um, but then there's a whole different side um, on top of that. Can you talk to those specific duties of a program director? Yeah. So the list is long. And uh, at the end of the day, um, the ACGME mandates that all program directors stay clinical. So you have to have some kind of clinical duties. If it's a general surgery program director, they would be doing surgery. Mm -hmm. If it's an internist, they may be doing inpatient or outpatient, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. If it's a fellowship director, if it's a cardiology fellowship director, they're still going to have to do cardiology. So okay. program director still has to stay clinically active. They have to be a model and an example of the specialty, number one. Right. Um, that's a minority of my time. So in theory, it's broken up 60-40. So 40% of my time is clinical. Mm-hmm. It's usually precepting. You know, I also go do hospital rounds, take care of our moms and babies. Um, but the rest of it's administrative, and it's uh, basically running the program. And so my philosophy is everything that I do is about my residents. Um, if I didn't have residents, I wouldn't be here. Um, you wouldn't have a need for a program director. So uh, it's laying out mission and vision, I think, is probably one of the, your, your important things. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a minority of a time commitment. But if you haven't started there, you know, who are we and what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, you kind of fail from the beginning. So laying out mission and vision. And then um, all the administrative stuff. So the ACGME has charged me with making sure that our residency, um, uh, the curriculum, what we're teaching, what we're doing is meeting the ACGME guidelines. And so the ACGME has a book of rules for every specialty. There's some common core things that are common among all specialties, but there's some family medicine ones that are very specific to us. And uh, that's what the ACGME has charged me with doing is making sure that our residency meets every single one of those rules. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot. (laughs) Right. Um, So those are essentially things that you will get at no matter what residency you end up at. Absolutely. Yep. Do you have some of those, like the big important ones on the top of your head? Yeah. So (laughs) curricular wise, I mean, I could throw out there, uh, you have to do two months of obstetrics. You have to do six months of inpatient medicine. You have to do inpatient medicine every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to do two months of pediatrics. You have to do two months of ER. Uh, those are just some curricular things. I mean, okay. I have those memorized. Right. Uh, you have to do a month of geriatrics. Uh, you have to do a month of gynecology. You know, so there's um, some very specific things in there. Mm-hmm. And there's some nebulous things, too. You must do some experience in dermatology. <laughs> you must do some experience in psychiatry. I mean, there are, so there's some more nebulous kind of things, too. Right. Could uh, be a day long. Could be a well, and, you month know, long. Yeah. And, and in family medicine, um, psychiatry is probably at least 20% of what we do. Yeah. Um, if you don't ask any questions. Right. So, you know, that's just a small piece of the ACGME manual is those curricular requirements. And there's a ton of other things. 
Uh, so I make sure that we have the right faculty complement. Mm-hmm. I make sure that our residents are well. Uh, I make sure that they're supported. Uh, I make sure that their individual needs are being met as well as their corporate you know, needs of the body of residents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I could list out 20 or 30 individual little things that I do as well, but that's kind of the big stuff. Right. Um, okay, and so the things that you just kind of listed there are mostly things that I'm imagining are going on uh, throughout the year. Uh, not specific to the application season. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but then also you have extra duties, I imagine, when it comes to this time of year, which is October, November, December, when you're yeah. reading applications and making decisions on who you want to interview and then performing the interview. And the interviewing, yeah. yeah. And then uh, deciding who you want to rank from there. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the program director-specific roles within that world? So to maybe to back up just a hair, sure. the residency kind of, it's a cyclical thing and it's every year it's wash, rinse, repeat, yep. wash, rinse, repeat. So I, in my mind, I see the, the residency life cycle. You know, you can think of it as an academic year. You know, residents start intern year on July 1st. They graduate third year on June 30th. You can kind of, in my mind, I kind of see the residency cycle as like March of pre starting as an intern. So the match, Mm-hmm. Match happens mid-March. Yep. From match, we onboard new residents before they even start. Right. At the same time, I'm graduating third years. July comes around, and we're orienting new interns, uh, making sure that first years into second years, you know, make that transition well. Second years into third years make that transition well. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, budget cycle happens kind of in September time frame. Okay. And then we like to get that out of the way before interview season starts because October, November, December is interview season. And so as that's going on, it may be in the forefront of my mind, but I still have 23 residents I need to take care of. Right. And I think uh, as a program director, you can't forget that I still need to take care of my residency. I still need to take care of my residents. Mm-hmm. I still need to make sure that we're meeting ACGME guidelines. Yeah. All while reviewing applications, deciding who to interview, doing the interviews, and then you know, kind of doing a rank list as we go on the fly. Right. Yeah. It's like uh, that time of year, you're especially thinking of and considering the present, like you said, and, but also thinking toward the future because that's yeah. important for the wellness of the entire residency is yeah. picking good residents that you think want to be here. are going to be a good match. going to yeah. get a lot out of uh, what your program has to offer. Yeah. Um, great. Well, um, so then it sounds like the way you're putting it and the way just I know you that the personality of the program director makes it kind of a big difference in the vibe or just the culture of the program itself. Is there is that is that true across the board? I I absolutely think that's true. I think the program director kind of sets the tone for the residency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you are the leader. You are charged by the ACGME by your sponsoring institution mm-hmm. with, with doing that. And I think they, and if they're not, I think that's a problem. It doesn't mean that what I say goes by any stretch of the imagination. Again, I have 23 residents. I have 23 individuals, individual needs. Uh, we certainly have a culture here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a top, it's a top down thing. Yeah. I, I, there's a kind of much like the aforementioned military. There's a chain yeah. of command, and yeah. and everyone has their role. And culture is perpetuated by each person, but kind of trickles down from the kind top. Of for sure. from the top. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about the application process from your perspective, um, or from any perspective you want to talk about it. But uh, so you talked about kind of all your different duties that are happening simultaneously throughout the year and even just throughout this time of year you're juggling um and so what does the program director look for and specifically for a family medicine applicant or what do they look for in their application because that's kind of the first way in which you interact with people as you read applications um what are the first things that you're you know personally looking for yeah, that's and that's that's such a good question, and all I can speak to is what I look for, because mm-hmm. um, I think you have uh, roughly four hundred family medicine residencies in this country, and Something I think like you probably that. have four hundred kind of unique um, ways to visualize this mm-hmm. uh, and ways to go about it. Um, at the end of the day, uh, as I was thinking about this for the last couple of days, um, I really think there's two things. Number one um, is is fit. So personality fit, uh, fit within the residency and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually that's, I don't know if that's number one or number two. So I don't know which, which okay. order it's important. <laughs> it's important. The other thing is, are you wanting to learn what we're teaching? There's 400 residencies out there. You're going to get this basket of things from the, you know, the ACG says, I have to give you this basket of training mm-hmm. and you're going to get that from any of the residencies. Uh, but every residency is a little unique. Maybe some are a little heavier on inpatient, some are a little heavier or a lot heavier on OB. Um, maybe some uh, are really good with uh, addiction medicine, pain medicine. Uh, maybe some really do the geriatrics piece well, um, sports, you know, all, all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, are you looking for some kind of training that we don't provide? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, in my mind, that answers one of those questions for me that you know, you may ha- well have put in an application for us, but I don't know that you're going to be a good match for us. Not like the NRMP match, but just, a, again, a physical match mm-hmm. uh, because you want something that we're not providing, right? a kind of training. Yeah. Is that easy or difficult or somewhere in between to suss that out with just an application? You see people's experiences, right. you know, their volunteer experiences, yes. their work experiences and um, research. And, and I think you putting all that mm-hmm. on your application really is good because it helps me. I look through every one of those. So there's five tabs at the bottom of the uh, ARIS application. I go through all those tabs. Mm-hmm. I read through your personal statement. Um, I'm less concerned about your scores. Uh, some people are really maybe score heavy and really, really looking at your scores. I'm mm-hmm. not really looking at your scores so much. I do want to know that you can pass the test right. because at the end of the day, to start here, you have to have passed step one and step two. Right. I mean, complex one, complex two, step one, step two. Yeah. Um, it's not as much of a weed out um, it, well, criteria for you. That part is not, no, yeah. for me. Um, some people, If yes. you've yeah. failed three or four or five tests, um, in my mind... I just tell you personally, we don't have a lot of assets here as far as uh, helping with remediation and things like that. And so I'm really looking more for personality fits mm-hmm. and less for the academic piece. But if you're really, really going to struggle academically, maybe this isn't the best place for you. Not that I don't want to handle that problem, 
And not that I don't want to walk through, I walk alongside a resident who has academic issues. It's just we don't have we don't have the resources yet. We're still a young residency, mm-hmm. and so I think in the future I'll be even less concerned about that. Right now, if I can see that you're really going to have problems struggling, for me right now in our residency, I'm probably going to pass on offering you a, a interview for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, every program director is going to be different. Okay, so scores are one of the things that you it's, look at. It's a tiny then, piece for me. Yeah. And then what are some of the other tabs? Um, I could have pulled it up ahead of time. <laughs> no, that's okay. Well, we talked about experiences, yeah. your work, and so yeah, and you've got like a demographics. You've got the work experience slash volunteer. And for mm-hmm. me, when I read through that, your history really paints a picture of who you are and what you've done. So, putting those volunteer experiences in there, uh, I led this, I started this, mm-hmm. I worked at this, kind of shows what your interests are, what your past is, um, and not from a judgmental perspective, but just from a um, it looks like you're interested in this kind of thing and mm-hmm. we definitely do that or we definitely don't do that helps me decide do I think you'd fit in here well right from the programmatic piece right um, then of course there's the personal statement mm-hmm. what do you glean from a personal statement it's <laughs> a big question because yeah. it could be answered a million ways we could have a podcast just on that on I'm just sure personal statements we totally could it seems like everyone got the same template this year okay like uh Here's what initially drew me. Here's a little patient story. Here's a little personal story. And then here's my bottom line. Mm-hmm. It seems like kind of everybody wrote the same thing. Yeah. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Uh, totally fine. Um, but uh, again, paints that picture of who you are as a person. We're really, I'm really looking more for a person, personality match here. Mm-hmm. Um, more than how much research have you done? Uh, and there may be some places that are really looking for the research piece. I do open the research tab. I see what you've done. Sometimes that helps me ask you a couple of questions. Hey, tell me about this research you did in in Malawi, or tell me about this study. You know, I'm interested in that. What What did you guys find? Yeah. Um, you could have zero publications, and I'm still going to look at you. Mm-hmm. Some other places maybe a little more competitive, maybe a little bit more research heavy, may not actually if you don't have any research. Right. So. Right. Interesting. Um, going back to the personal statement thing, you talked about the template that a lot of people seem to have followed. <laughs> it, you know, it's tough because you do get some feedback from the writing center people um, in you know whatever uh, you know editing program you use, and who has ever editing your your stuff and your advisors, and they're all kind of telling you to go one way. You don't want to be too creative and out there, but you do want to show personality. Uh, it's a difficult thing. Are you? Do you feel like you're able to get people's personality through their this standard template, however boring it may be, or however or however <laughs> you know uh, commonly used it is? That's a great question. So, um, a little creativity is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Let me, let me uh, tell you one little caveat before I forget. Um, dot your eyes and cross your t's. Make your punctuation right. Read mm-hmm. it many times. Have someone else read it, and then have someone else read it. Um, I will tell you. I will judge you on punctuation problems, and I will judge you on grammar issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just tells me that you know. Are you the type of person that um, is meticulous? Uh, are you going to be meticulous with your patients? Are you going to dot the i's and cross the t's with the patients? I don't know if that comes from my military background or just my upbringing, but. Uh, when I look at CVs, if I'm going to hire a faculty or something like that, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I very closely look at grammar and punctuation and things like that, and that matters to me. Uh, I don't know how much it matters to other people. I'm telling you, one person out of 400. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah. it definitely matters. So uh, be very cautious and very careful with uh, with grammar, punctuation, flow. Um, have it not be too robotic either. Mm-hmm. Um, I love um, being able to read who you are in there. Uh, the personal experiences are nice. Uh, certainly it kind of, again, paints that picture of who you are. Mm-hmm. And I am trying to match personalities here. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So does, does the, um, what you're looking for in an applicant, does that change based on the, maybe the demographics of the applicant? Maybe they're, uh, straight through med school or straight through from college to med school and they're, you know, on the younger side of things versus the person who's had 15 years of work experience and they're in their late thirties. Um, or, or does it change if they clearly were interested in emergency medicine or surgery or whatever and then sometime along the way decided on family medicine for whatever reason that they you know um, talk about in their personal statement or versus you know how academic uh, what kind of academic achiever they are if they're like Mm -hmm. the a plus student versus the person who is just uh, getting by but getting by um, I'm going to answer the second half of that real quick. Sure. I will tell you, uh, well, I'll, I'll answer the whole thing. I, um, when I went through medical school, the traditional student was four years of high school, four years of college, four years of med school, straight into residency. Yeah. You know, I finished residency. I did that. I finished residency at 29. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that was traditional when I was a med student. Yeah. And I, you know, I finished medical school in 2001. Uh, that is absolutely turned around now, where that is by far the exception than the rule. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone's taken a year off somewhere, or done five years of college, or done something completely different. Done, you know, ten to fifteen years ahead of time of something different. I really appreciate that uniqueness. Yeah. Um, I'm not necessarily looking for people who went straight through. Yeah, for me, it's not a plus or a minus. It is what it is. Although I really do love seeing the life experiences. Uh, I've seen, read a number of applications from folks who were EMTs for a while or paramedics, mm-hmm. uh, firefighter, a couple of firefighters. Um, I have a lot of respect for those folks. Um, so, and, you know, and whatever it is, business experience, uh, whatever that is, Peace Corps experience, uh, military experience. I certainly have a soft place in my heart for, uh, for that military experience. And that's going to vary from program director to program director. So if you have that military experience, and you're a solid applicant, I actually, I don't know if it's preference, but I have given nearly every one of those applicants a, an interview. Mm-hmm. And that just probably comes from my background. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And that kind of speaks to the fit and the match, the you know, the so-called match, not the match, right. big M uh, element to this whole uh, process. Yeah. Um, so that's from the that's from your perspective personally right. and uh, and your role as a program director. Do uh, I'm assuming that other faculty, uh, perhaps residents, also factor into the interviewing process and Absolutely. the and the matching process. Absolutely. And the rank or the ranking process, I should say. Yeah. Um, do they look for other things than the things that you've talked about so far? So at the end of the day, um, I put a lot of weight into where the residents, uh, the residents have to work with the students that are coming in with the new residents. Yep. So I put a lot of weight into, especially the first and second year residents, the current first and second year residents, what yeah, their opinions are. For sure. 
And then I talk to my third year. Sometimes the third year is like, why are we even interviewing? We're not going to work with these people. I, I make sure they understand you have a legacy to leave here. Yeah. Um, you, um, the next class that comes in uh, is, is going to, you know, where, you know, continue the banner, continue, you know, what you guys have been doing. So you, you have a say in uh, making sure we get good people here. Plus, you've already worked here for two years, two, two and a half years, yeah. and you know who we are. Yeah, you know uh, the and most so help about the me program. Find, exactly, yeah. you know the most about the program. So help me find the people you know fit in well here. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like, uh, you know, 10 years down the road, you're going to want to say, I went to that residency program and have yeah. it be awesome because Absolutely. of all the people that have since Absolutely. came through it as well. Absolutely, there is a good so, legacy piece to that. Yeah, um, so you talked about you talked about failing some board exams as being like, not necessarily a red flag, but some sort of flag. Yeah. Um, uh, or just a, an eyebrow razor just to be like, mm, I don't know if that's the best, this is the best place for someone like that. Mm-hmm. Not that they couldn't succeed somewhere else. Yeah. Um, what are some of your personal red flags, uh, or things that you're just really, uh, maybe cringe worthy or, or whatever, however we want to talk about it when yeah. you see it on the either, either in the application or we can kind of fast forward as well to the interview. Cause we're going to talk more about interview. So, um, Red flags. Um, there can be lots of red flags, and a lot of it's in my mind. It's kind of read into past things. I'll tell you the biggest one is professionalism lapses. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a that's a big deal. What do some of those look like? Uh, things that are noted, like on the dean's letter. Okay. Of, uh, it's very uncommon. Mm-hmm. But when they talk about professionalism lapses, it's something that if that's the case, I want to see you talk about it in your personal statement. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened. I had a moral failing. I had um, this problem. Here's how I dealt with it. Uh, I'm doing fine now. Um, and so, you know, uh, e- felonies, things like that. I got mm-hmm. a DUI. Okay. What have you done since then? Yeah. Uh, in my mind, a DUI is not a... Uh, it's not a job killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a big deal as a physician if you get a DUI when you're a physician. But if you got one as a med student, it's certainly a huge deal. Yeah, uh, it certainly speaks to your character and and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But what did you do to overcome that? Right. Other professionalism issues, um, and so that one is not as as big of a deal for me. Okay. But there other professionalism issues are a big deal. So lying and cheating in med school. Yeah. Um, I'm probably not going to offer you an interview. Yeah. Uh, just to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've been kicked out of other residencies, not that you left other residencies, uh, but if you got kicked out of another residency, uh, I'm not going to Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's it's hard uh, because I think people deserve a second chance. Mm-hmm. Um, when people leave other residencies, if it was a TY, so you match into a TY and decide you want to go to family medicine, I want you to speak to that in your in your personal statement. If you don't, I'm probably not going to interview you. I want to hear, you know, what were you thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking derm, and then I decided not to do that. Or right. uh, you did a prelim surgery year. I was thinking surgery, or I just didn't match, and I found a prelim year. Okay, let me know that. Uh, I think those things are important. When I look, when I look at this year's applicants, and you're not going to graduate from med school in 22. So you graduated in 21 or 20 or 19. Mm-hmm. I, I want to know what happened in there. Yeah. Um, it's a big part of your personal story. It and is. It's a big part a- of your again, life and that relational who you piece. are. Yeah. yeah, that relational piece. Um, the what. I, I kind of want to know that. So that that is a red flag. And, and I want to see you speak to it. 
mm-hmm. when there are when you did medical school in something over four years, so four and a half years, five years, six years, I want you to speak to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a pregnancy. Sometimes it's I failed a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's you know whatever it is. Uh, I had family health stuff. Exactly, family health was is a big one that yeah. I read this year. Okay, um, personal. Uh, I had back surgery. I, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, speak to those things when when it takes you extra long to get through med school. Speak to it. Yeah. Uh, and then your resilience. What did you do to get through that? Right. And this is all something you'd expect to see in a personal statement. Somewhere on Eris, I'd love to see you speak to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and when you don't, um, in my mind, that's kind of a red flag. Okay. So I guess kind of one thing I'm getting is. Things that are important in your life, especially of you know recent importance and mm-hmm. and things that have to do with medical school or residency. If you're not addressing those, then that is curious at, yeah. at, at least. There is a part on Eris. It's on the bottom of the first page, actually. Um, that's you know if there was a gap in training or extended training, yeah. there's an explanation thing there. Right. So if you explained it thoroughly there, I don't necessarily. Need it in the personal need it statement. in the personal statement necessary yeah. unless you feel like you need to right. to talk through it. Okay, that's good because I, I remember seeing that part, but it didn't yeah. apply to me, so I right. just exactly kind of forgot. But for a lot of people, it does. Yeah, you know, I graduated residency a year or, or graduated med school a year ago. I did a one year. Uh, I didn't match. Again, you know, uh, I had a baby during school and I wanted to spend time. Actually, I think that's great. Yeah, uh, we are so supportive here of our moms of our female residents who have uh, who have babies. And our dads whose wives have babies and partners have babies and such. Uh, And the same thing during med school. Um, I I like that she actually took some time um, and took an extra six months or an extra year uh, to bond with your baby. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, And that little one-liner down there, yeah, I had a baby. I took some time off. Great. That's not a red flag for me. Sure. The number one red flag is when I look at your med school and it says five years, then I automatically go down to the bottom and say, well, what happened in there? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So it sounds like there's a lot of ways to just be honest and forthcoming yeah. and show your personality. That honesty piece yeah. is so important. Yeah. And it sounds like with the way we're talking about this application process, there's going to necessarily to be a lot of great fits. You're going to have thousands of applications, or I guess you can tell us how, how yeah. many applications do you review? So for us, uh, we had an initial... 650 applications or so just on the first day on the not necessarily the first day but you know within the first week or so okay um we can put some filters in there put a couple filters in there and got it down to about 450 okay and then um my behavioralist dr pescuzo and i he we just split it up and uh, he did a through k and i did l through z actually started with z so those folks who are at the end of the alphabet who feel like they get the last dibs (laughs) i started with you Nice. Okay. That's good to know. Um, and so 450 people right away. Um, how do you narrow it down? I'm sure you had a ton of good fits, let's say 50% yeah. or where do you think that you were like, it was about a, 50%. Yeah. yeah. So through the, so I, I do very few invitations on the first go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have my own little ranking system and it was about 50, 50, 50, 50, yeah, I think they'd be fine here or not. And so I can't interview that many. Right. And so kind of go through and maybe weed out some early 
uh, about half of them, mm-hmm. and then kind of go through and really look for that those two big things: is are you a good fit, and are you wanting the kind of training that we're doing? Yeah. Um, and so then, um, roughly, how many people do you come up with in the pool of I want to interview these people? So there's kind of a, a formula out there uh, for family medicine. I don't know if it applies to other specialties or not, but there's this uh, eight to one philosophy. Mm-hmm. So usually um, you interview about, um, sorry, it's a 10 to one philosophy. We have eight residents per class. Okay. So 10 to one philosophy, you interview 10 people per number of residents that you want. So we're an 888 residency. So that means I'm looking to interview about 80 people. Okay. Um, so screen 450, get that down to, and not everyone that we invite is going to necessarily come for an interview either. Mm -hmm. So we may end up inviting, um, 90, 95, something like that, and then get that down to uh, about 80 interviews. Right. Okay. Well, that's perfect. Um, transition to talk. That's the way we do it. Right. Right. For sure. Um, and some programs are uh, smaller. Some programs are four people in a class yeah, or that's 12 the smallest people. family medicine residency is oh, okay. a four, four, four. Yeah. I've seen those. And then I came from the largest residency. We had uh 22 per class at the time. Okay. And now they, I think they have 24 per class. Now. Oh, okay. Yeah. JPS. No. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, JPS. JPS. Um, so if you're following that 10 to one rule, yeah. we were interviewing <laughs> that's a lot, yeah. 220 people or so at the time. Yeah. Um, that's, it's a lot. that's pretty wild. Yeah. Um, um, oh yeah. So we were just about, you've been talking about getting toward the interview. So it's a good time to, to talk about the interview. Same kind of question applies here. Now you have dozens, about a hundred, we'll call it of people that you're going to invite to an interview. Call it's it pr- 80. All right. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah hundred or so. Yeah. Well, we can, we'll go with dozens, but <laughs> Plenty of uh, people you're bringing in for the interview. Now you got still a lot of great people, great fits, and uh, great personalities, people that you think might get a lot out of this program. Now how do we even narrow it down from there? So... Yeah, that that, and honestly, that's the question. That's the hard part. How do we decide... Uh, on the ranking, how do we, you know, decide on the ranking order? Um, and so I'm going to ask my questions. Uh, what we do here, again, we're one residency out of 400 or so. Um, I have, I interview every, uh, student, um, very particular about that. Uh, I have two faculty also interview and then I have two, uh, two residents do interviews of everyone as well. And then we'll do a lunchtime, um, where we have all four people, and since we're doing virtual right now, on the screen at the same time, and then four residents eating lunch at the same time. And so we kind of do lunch together. So instead of the usual old school where we'd bring you in, we would eat, probably eat dinner together the night before and eat lunch together and interview while we're doing that. Mm-hmm. We're kind of doing that virtually. So you end up kind of having touches with three faculty, one of those is myself, mm-hmm. and four residents. Okay. Um, and so each person has that as their interview structure. Um, and then they seem like great applicants. Let's say 50% of those seem like great applicants and you get together and talk about that and decide on 50%, we'll call it 40 people. Are you ranking all 40 people that you 
you know, decided that you thought were awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, how big are these rank lists from the program side? I'm thinking of it from the from the applicant side. They can't be that big because you can't do that many interviews. You're, no one's doing 40, I imagine. But maybe 15 would be a high number. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Right. That'd be yeah. that'd be a lot. But so the rank list has got to be huge from your side. So and again, we're one program. Yeah. Um, we um, you we can rank people we don't interview. That is a possibility. I, don't know uh, that I any, honestly didn't know that. I don't know that any program is really going to do that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of a somewhat of a moot point, but you can do that. Okay. Uh, I would love to rank every person that we interview. Uh, there may be some people we interview that we, you know, we got through the screening process of screening applications. They came, you know, I thought they might be a good fit and we actually interview them and then we realize, well, maybe not. Uh, we don't have to rank everyone. Mm-hmm. My goal though would be to rank every person that we interview. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just tell you last year we ranked, um, we interviewed 88 and we ranked most of those people. Okay. Um, so we're not just going to rank 40 people. I mean, I would just assume rank 80, uh, cause at the end of the day, I, w- I would like to fill and not have to, you know, go through the soap process if we didn't have to. Right. Okay. And so people these days are interviewing over a video conference format. Um, I guess you have only experienced that as a program director you, as a director. Yeah. Yeah. But you've experienced it as faculty being uh, in person, in yeah. person interviews before. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like that uh, is? How do you feel like that, <laughs> that works to be able to accurately and effectively assess, you know, in both directions? Yeah. This is kind of the national conversation right now. Yeah. Um, as far as the AAMC, you know, which is the medical school side, um, and the, uh, uh, ACGME, the, you know, the residency side and kind of putting those two houses together. Um, and there are certainly pluses and minuses to both. So, I mean, the virtual side allows the student to probably interview at more places. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably cheaper, um, which is, I think a good thing cause you don't have to fly. You don't have to stay overnight yeah. things like that. Take um, days off, take and... days off. You know, you take half days off to do a virtual interview. So I think there are yeah. absolutely some advantages some people feel like there might be some, uh, it might be a little more equitable, um, uh, a little bit more fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that I necessarily buy that, but um, there, that's a big part of the national conversation is fairness. Yeah. Does that have to do with the, the expense portion um, of it or what, what partly about Partly the expense yeah. and then partly the, um, uh, if you have a home residency affiliated with your med school, you kind of have a little bit of an in. You kind of have a little bit of, uh, I don't know that it's cheating per se, but you know, you, you have an in with that residency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talked you about networking earlier locale, being important. Right? Yeah. And so you, as a Denver student, you know, you have five family medicine residencies here in town. Easy for you. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to someone who um, is in a medical school that does not have an affiliated residency or affiliated hospital. Yeah. Um, has a huge disadvantage, actually, from that perspective, mm-hmm. having the homegrown residency. Yeah. So there's there's some equity, equity kind of con- concerns with that there. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing you miss is this is a personality thing. It's um, are these the kind of people that I want to work with? And are you the kind of person that we want to work with? Mm-hmm. And maybe that's kind of harder to tell with virtual interviews. Yeah. If that makes sense. So we have to I definitely think it is. We have to decide yeah. that in twenty minute little snippets of interviews. Yeah. On a screen. Right. Where, you know, even if you didn't have the kind of personality we fit with, you could probably fake it for twenty minutes. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um 
and I think in my mind, you really, really want to be genuine and really ask hard questions and really ask deep questions, not to look smart, but to really ask the things you want to know. Is this the kind of place I really want to be at? Are these the kind of people I want to work with? Mm-hmm. As a student, I think are probably the most important things. And those are really, we're looking for those things too. Are you the kind of person, again, those two big things I talked about, are you the kind of person that's going to fit in well here? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of want to put a pin in the uh, questions that the applicant asked to the program and come back to that in just a, yeah. a moment. But yeah. uh, you talked about you know faking being uh, personable, at least, or faking being a good fit for 20 minutes, which I de- definitely think is possible. But I also think the opposite could happen as well because I – uh, you know, I've done uh, plenty of Zoom interactions over the last year plus, yeah. year and a half. We and, all have, yeah. Right, and we all have. And um, sometimes I feel like it is just stifling and I don't feel as dynamic. I don't feel as, you know, fun and interesting. I feel like it's just uh, staring at the screen and I'm, my personality is not coming through. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it could be, you know, the opposite could happen as well and probably does a lot I I think that's totally true and that's in my mind that's I think for me personally I think that's the biggest detriment to uh, to doing the virtual interviews right is you don't get to see you don't get the relational piece you don't get the personality piece as much you getting to judge that from the residency and the residents Mm -hmm. uh, and us as well and you you know um, I think it's more important from your side as the student okay yeah, that's interesting. To, to get to see that piece. And I think that's what you miss on a virtual interview. Yeah. And, you know, I do feel personally lucky that, like you said, I have a lot of options living in Denver to go to these programs, uh, whether it be on a rotation or a sub-internship or even just on like a day-long tour, because um, you can set those up too if you, for whatever reason, don't get a sub-internship or couldn't schedule it um, with your schedule. And then you can just go to the place hang out for a day, see what it's like, get the vibe of the culture, meet people, all those things that you said are super important in assessing, do you want to be here? Do they want you here? Um, But then there are some people who don't get those opportunities. They're in rural areas. They can't travel um, for whatever reason. So that's kind of a a chasm there between the – uh, people that you've actually met in person because then you actually do end up meeting people in person Absolutely. when people are here for a rotation it's, versus people who aren't, but yet you're still interviewing them both uh, it's part of over the, deal, the Zoom. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. <laughs> it's it's difficult. I imagine it's difficult from your perspective to be equitable in that way because you've met some and haven't met some. It, it certainly gives the folks who've done a sub-I an advantage. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know you. Yeah, you know, um, Rocky Vista University um, is our, you know, kind of home medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have faculty appointments there. Res, you know, students rotate in their third year and then come and do sub eyes here. I mean, it it is what it is. Yeah, we really know those students. We know them well. Uh, we kind of get to know their strengths and weaknesses pretty closely. They get to know ours too. Yeah, you know, they've looked under the hood and we've looked under the hood and uh, kind of know. Yeah. Um, great. So you're interviewing in these 20 minute snippets, uh, or at least that's how your program that's how we're doing it, yeah. does it, um, where you meet with the program director for 
20 minutes and then a faculty for 20 minutes and then a resident? Is that how it works one-on-one like that? Well, personally what we do is I meet with everyone for uh, 40 minutes to start off with. I do a program director overview with all four people that mm-hmm. are on for interviews that day. Mm-hmm. And then we do um, breakout sessions for an hour and 40 minutes 20 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you'll, I'll have an individual meeting with you. You'll have, the student will have uh, two different faculty meetings and then two different residents, you know, resident meetings. Yeah. That's kind of that hour and 40 minutes. Okay. Um, so how does somebody completely rock the interview? That's a great question. Honestly, if I could say one thing, it's just, it's genuineness. Be genuine, be who you are. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, you do want to be professional. You want to dress professionally certainly is important Yeah. these days with the zoom interview. Uh, the backgrounds can speak, uh, can speak volumes sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I have interestingly had, um, students last year, you know, we just started interviews this year, but students last year Mm -hmm. who intentionally put pictures, posters, books behind them. And I look and I'm like, Hey, tell me about that. (laughs) That was strategic for them. Uh, and I think that was cool. Uh, that's not a problem. It oh, can nice. be a conversation starter. I, I thought you were going to go the opposite way and no. say, tell me about that book. Oh, I haven't read it. It's just well, there that, for that show. is a problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's something, especially that I've read like, Hey, yeah, I love that book behind you. Well, I haven't gotten around to that yet. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not so good. Think about your background. Sure. Um, okay. It could speak to who you are. A blank wall is not a problem at all. Okay. At all. Yeah. Um, I love kids. I love animals and stuff, but probably not the time for your dog to be jumping in your lap, or your cat to be walking across the keyboard. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, if your kid's crying, um, I'm that doesn't bother me. I'm a family doc. I have four kids of my own. That doesn't bother me. It may bother other people, though. I bet you yeah. residents that don't have kids, it'll probably bother them. So, yeah. you know, thinking in the professional terms there. Mm-hmm. So I think that setup is important. Um, so have the setup make sure that your own av equipment works well make sure your camera works right your microphone works okay things like that ahead of time make sure your battery's charged do all that stuff make it professional yeah we do the same thing from our side too i'm very very meticulous with julie my program coordinator to make sure that we we practice it and we do it over and over actually before we start interview season and we make sure that av equipment's working right we make sure we got the rooms all set up. Um, that's important for me to put forward that professional piece. Yeah. And then, you know, from the interview itself, again, be genuine. Um, who are you? Uh, I always ask the applicants two questions, and then we kind of go from there. I always say, um, I've read your stuff. I kind of think I know who you are. Uh, I kind of think I know why. I think I know the answers to these questions, but I want to hear it from you personally. Mm-hmm. Why family medicine? And why this residency? Yeah. Um, and so that means when you go to each interview, do some homework first. Yeah. Please, for the love of God, do some homework. Um, and and know about the residency. Know know some good stuff. Yeah. Why are you interested in this residency? Uh, means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that you have actually done some homework and you actually know something about this residency, other than I want to be in Denver, or I don't know, I just uh, I want to match somewhere. Right. That's not good enough for me. You're probably not going to get ranked if that's your answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, uh, those are good thoughts. And sometimes I find it a little bit difficult to find out unique things about different programs. Um, pe- the program websites are oftentimes great. Sometimes they're good. Um, and 
sometimes I feel like there's not a lot of specific, unique, um, distinguishing characteristics that are able to be found out easily is, um, which I'm assuming goes both ways and that you find that about the, you know, uh, assessing applicants as well. You're like, well, yeah, you seem great, but what is different about you? Yeah. Uh, but so in, in the applicant search or the research, how can they find out those things without having done a sabai, without knowing, you know, some background information? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, because most people will not have done a sabai. Right. The people who have done the sub-I are the by far the minority sure. of, of folks. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there are many ways you can do that. The AAFP website is probably a really good place to start. So go to the AAFP website, go to mm-hmm. the resident student tab, and mm-hmm. then go down to residencies, find a residency, find that residency, and that's a good place to start. A lot of times they'll have links on there. And then uh, Frida is a good place to look. Uh, not every residency mm-hmm. updates their Frida. Yeah. Uh, we did. We were pretty intentional about that, updating Frida. Uh, and putting some information on there, if that's the source, because we got uh, feedback from some students that that Frida was their source that they used. Um, I would personally start with the AFP. You can go to Frida. Yeah. And then try to find the website. Uh, hopefully there's a link to the website on AFP. In my mind, that tells students that uh, I actually care about you finding out about my program. Mm-hmm. Um, and go look at the website that way and navigate through that. Yeah. Um, probably some really good ways. Some may have Facebook pages and Instagram pages and, and Twitter accounts and right. things like that. Also, other good ways to find out maybe less about the curricular things and more about the, again, that important thing that you want to know, the personality fit. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, so going kind of going back to the interview itself, there's, you know, I think there's a lot of standard questions. Um, you kind of mentioned two of them, like, who are you or uh, why this program? Or, yeah. well, sorry, why family why medicine, family medicine yeah, and why, why this program? program? I asked that to yeah. I've been doing that since I've been interviewing students. Since mm-hmm. I was again just a faculty, right? To now as a to you know to as a fellowship director, and then now as a program director, I've mm-hmm. always asked those two questions to start off with. And, and, and again, I've read all your stuff. Yeah, I just want to hear it from you. Yeah, um, and and that kind of gives you a good chance to say all the things that you couldn't feel like you could get into your personal mm-hmm. statement or your whatever other uh, writing materials that you uh, submit, but. I feel like it's also a very difficult thing to do because you don't want to sound too cliche. You don't want to sound too formulaic. You do want to express your own thoughts and feelings on the matter without repeating stuff that you've already read. Um, How does someone say that sort of stuff without sounding cliche or lame or boring? Um, And... Yeah, let's just start with that. Uh, that's a great question. So just be genuine, honestly. Yeah. Um, I, there's two kind of common paths to family medicine. One is I saw it when I was young. I kind of knew I wanted to do it coming in, and I stayed with it. Mm-hmm. The other is um, I went through third year, mm-hmm. and I liked every rotation, Yeah, but I knew I didn't want to do only that. And that's and I kind of maybe backed into it, and and maybe backed into it's the wrong way, but I realized I liked everything, and you know, family medicine fits everything. Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, fine. That's who you are. Mm-hmm. That, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, just be genuine about it. Cool. Um, and then an, a, kind of a similar question, similar underlying theme to the question, uh, is just the idea of how to sell yourself because. 
I feel like it's genuinely or generally, I should say, uncomfortable for a lot of people to do that. Some people are natural at that. Uh, I find it uncomfortable and it's just not, do. yeah, it's not my forte. It's not my, my baseline. Uh, so I have to one work on it and two just ride with the uh, discomfort that is going to be there while I'm selling myself in some way. But you know, you're talking, you're really emphasizing the genuineness rather than the show me what you're made of, uh, aspect to this whole process. But you do want to, you know, accentuate your good qualities and, um, is there a way that you see people struggle with that or don't do it at all um, versus overdo it? Uh, how, how do people sell themselves to you? It's a great question. So that is a great question. So we are, I think by, by default, most of us are humble people. Mm-hmm. We don't like talking about ourselves. Yeah. We're not salespeople. Um, the narcissist has no problem talking about themselves. Right. Um, and you can sometimes pick up on that. <clears throat> Just talking about yourself and selling yourself is not narcissistic. Right. As a matter of fact, I mean, the converse, I think, is true. You are trying to sell yourself. Whenever you make a CV, it's hard for us to talk about ourselves and the things that we've done. But mm-hmm. it's important that you put everything on there. Hey, yeah, I did this. You're not patting yourself on the back, but you are kind of patting yourself on the back. It's mm-hmm. important. You're trying to sell yourself. Uh, and the same thing in something like this. You know, hey, yeah, I have done these things. It is time. You, you do have to use the word I. Yeah, I'm interviewing you as an individual. Um, it's okay to talk about yourself. It's okay to talk about the things you've done. Uh, again, I think a genuineness and a uniqueness, uh, I think, is important. Yeah, cool. I guess that's a good way to think about it. Is the more you just talk about your experiences and uh, talk about them confidently and proudly the more you're just showing your uniqueness and your genuineness as a person. And that's what we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we talked about the concept of the rank order list. Actually, you know what? I want to circle back to something that we put a pin in earlier, Mm -hmm. which is I feel like this often comes at the end of an interview or or a a day or whatever it is. The questions, do you have any questions for us? Uh, uh, Part of the interview. Um, you talked about asking deep and maybe difficult questions. questions yeah. yeah. Um, so talk a little bit more about that. How can people um, ask those deep questions? Uh, where do people get hung up on that aspect of assessing the program? So the, um, you should – you're um, – interviewing us as much as we're interviewing you don't ever forget that Mm -hmm. this is a this is a two-way street um it's kind of like a marriage i need to make sure you're good for me you need to make sure that you know you're good for me and we need to make sure this this works yep so ask questions you actually care about not don't ask questions to look smart yeah don't ask questions just to ask questions um if you get to the fifth interview like for our program and you don't have questions that's okay if you have a standard question of, um, tell me about the culture of this residency, it's like a hard kind of question to ask. It's not a bad question. I've gotten that question before, and I have to kind of think sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gotten questions like um, vision-type questions. I love I love talking about, hey, yeah, here's one, two, five-year vision. Uh, here's where we're going. Mm-hmm. I like those kind of questions. Yeah. Where are you guys heading? What's gonna, or another question, what's going to change while I'm there? Great question. Interesting. Tells yeah. me that you have reviewed 
what's the curriculum look like right now? Who are these people now? And where do you see us going? Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's a really good question. If you care, maybe you don't care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe you just really like the location. You just want to be there regardless of what happens. Right. Maybe you don't care about that. Yeah. Um, maybe there are things that were unclear when you looked at the website because you did your homework. Mm -hmm. For me, when you've done your homework and you've really looked through things and you ask kind of questions like, Hey, I saw this. Tell me about that. Uh, for us, it might be, Hey, I saw you're starting this new homeless rotation. Tell me about that. Where do you do it? What's it like? Um, if you're interested in HIV care, uh, Hey, do you guys do that? Mm-hmm. Or, uh, Hey, I've gotten my certificate to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, are you guys doing that? You know, th- and those are things we're not doing yet. Um, and, you know, and I might be able to say, you know, yeah, great question, but uh, we're not doing that. Right. If it's something that's really, really important for you, maybe that's maybe we're not the best fit for you. Mm-hmm. So asking questions that you really care about, that you really want to know about, don't ask questions just to look smart. Right. Don't ask questions because you think you have to ask questions. Yeah. Is that, is that fair? Totally. Yeah, it's good. I know um, people feel put on the spot sometimes, even though they know that question is coming or that yeah. <laughs> aspect is coming. Uh, and sometimes I'll speak personally when people say, do you have any questions or, you know, feel free to ask questions or it'll oftentimes be after, um, you know, we talked about a patient, like specific, not, this is not during an interview, but yeah. just during a, a rotation, they'll say, do you have any questions about that patient? I'm, I'm sure I will maybe in a day or two days or next week. Uh, right now I'm still just processing all the things and, uh, you know, the, the actual aspects of patient care that are going on now. Uh, so sometimes I, I know that that can be a, an issue for me is the questions will come later. And, you know, for you to say things like, no, you, uh, you answered all my questions. Um, we, you, you answered every question I had during the course of this discussion we just had in the last 20 minutes. That that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's a res- very respectful answer. Uh, I did have some questions and you answered them all Yeah. between, uh, you know, if it was my interview with them between the PD discussion and the discussion we just had the last 20 minutes. Yeah. You've answered all my questions. Yeah, for sure. That but is, that's totally fine. Yeah. A respectful answer like that. Yeah. Um, definitely. And I, the big, my big takeaway here is you're saying don't ask questions to, to ask questions. Don't ask questions because it's something that's an a- aspect of the interview. Um, but, ask questions to find out the best fit for you. And if you got those questions answered, that's fine. But your goal is to find the best residency program for you. Yeah. You could say I was going to ask about this, but you know, we just talked about that. So yeah, sure. I'm good. Sure. Speaking of something I was going to ask about, but we did talk about networking. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it earlier as being a hugely important aspect of finding a job. Finding a residency is finding a job. Um, how does that apply to a fourth or even third or before that year med student? Um, how are they, how, how do you see people networking correctly or effectively, I should say, versus, you know, passing up their opportunities to do that? Um, so networking through your school, through other residents, through more, or through, I'm sorry, through other students, through more senior students, um, through your advisor, through, um, other avenues at school, just keeping lines of communication open. Yeah. Um, that networking piece. And then as you go and do rotations, uh, those networking pieces. I remember as a third year, uh, I went and did an 
uh, away OBGYN rotation. While I was there, I went and um, I knew I wanted to do family medicine. This was at the end of my third year. So I went down and hung out in the family medicine clinic when I wasn't up on labor and delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, made sure they kind of knew who I was. I went to their rounds. I went to their conference. I did an interview while I was there. You know, so uh, was very intentional about kind of getting my face out there. Yeah. So ultimately, the more people know about you, yeah. if it's positive you, stuff, you, I guess. You never know. Yeah. I ended up not better. ranking that place, but I, I didn't know that ahead of time. Yeah. I was there. It was a good opportunity for me to do that. Yeah. So if you're at a place, let's say uh, for you, you were at uh, St. Anthony's in town, you were doing a, a derm rotation there, mm-hmm. and you didn't do a family medicine rotation, it would be in your best interest to go hang out. Go introduce yourself. meet some family yeah. docs, you know, something like that. Meet the leadership, meet the program director, uh, set up an, a meeting. Yeah. Less of an interview nowadays since we're virtual, but uh, get your face and your name out there. For sure. And I've noticed this too. People don't think you're creepy or weird or, or overextending yourself or that, uh, anything like that. Yeah. Although, Ross, the thing yeah. is, we've all been there and done that. For sure. I was a medical student. Every resident, every faculty yeah. was a med student at one point. So we get it. Yeah. We know where you're at. Yeah. There, that and I've, I've been pleasantly surprised to see how, uh, at least in the family med world, I can't speak for surgery. In fact, we might be able to contrast the two. But um, in family med, people like other people who are interested in that. They say, yeah. oh, you want to be in family med? Yeah, come on over. I'll show you what I'm doing or whatever. You know, I mean, Watch me chart or what, I don't know. <laughs> whatever cool, awesome, super exciting thing is going on like that. You make it sound really sexy. <laughs> um, so that's been an awesome you know, maybe discovery of mine is that people are just all about if you're interested in the same thing they're interested in. Yes, that is so true. Yeah. And I would say maybe even more for the surgeons. If you're interested in surgery, um, you tell a surgeon you're actually interested in surgery and you're busting your butt and you're, you know, anatomy and you're good with your hands. And and that's a, maybe even a bigger deal in surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, they like it when people like what they do. Cool. Well, see, I was going to go the opposite way. I was going to say, oh, everybody's interested in surgery, get to the back of the line type thing, you know. Well, it's not true, though. I mean, I think more people are interested in primary care and peds Mm -hmm. and medicine and and family medicine uh, than are interested in surgery. So when they actually find people who are interested in what they're interested in, they they really appreciate that Okay. uh, in the surgery world. Cool. Can you actually talk a little bit about that for a second? The, The what you just said, more people are interested in primary care specialties and being in the world of primary care. Is that statistically something you're seeing these days? It is. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me. And so I can look at like uh, Rocky Vista where 50% of students match into either internal medicine, pediatrics or family medicine. Mm -hmm. So I would, you know, I would call Rocky Vista a primary care strong school. Uh, And there are other schools that may be very, you know, a lot more academic that that's way less. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a lot of East Coast schools and things like that may very well end up with with really low numbers from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at, I mean, you're already in medical school, so you're not looking for a medical school for uh, you know for a strong primary care or not strong primary care. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I know it's it's something that it seems like economics is favoring a little bit more, just kind of in general, just uh, primary care in general. Uh, you're making a face. I made a face. You can't see it on the podcast. <laughs> so if you're thinking strictly in economics, um, school's getting more expensive. 
like yeah. way more expensive. And most people have done eight years of schooling, if not more. Yeah. Uh, and have debt from college and from med school. It's crazy. Uh, and you're talking huge debts. Yeah. So for some people, for some students looking at specialty, sometimes unfortunately is driven by how much can I make so I can pay off my loans. Yeah. Even though it's maybe not what's in your heart that you really want to do necessarily. Mm -hmm. So know that, I mean, family medicine is not definitely not one of the top paying specialties by any means. Pediatrics is a little lower. Psychiatry is a little lower. Um, and, you know, and so family medicine is probably on the lower spectrum, but you can certainly make a good living and pay off your loans in 10 years. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's... I or mean, even better, find other people to pay off your loans. You sound like you have some... Yeah, the Air Force yeah. paid my paid, okay. you know, paid well, for my medical school. You yeah. know, so there's National Service Corps. Uh, you can find jobs sometimes in more... A little bit underserved. You don't have to go completely rural, but yeah. more underserved areas where they'll do some loan forgiveness and loan repayment type right. programs. Yeah, that seems like um, yeah. so, some so really cool opportunities there. I think that fits into that primary care piece. So don't feel like you can't go into a primary care specialty um, because you have, you know, large debt. Right. Um, we were going to talk about ranking of programs mm-hmm. from both sides of things. Yeah. Um, kind of coming back to the, uh, the application and interview process after the interviews are done, both sides of the uh, of the party the applicant and the programs rank each other you said you can have up to 80 something ranks uh or as many as you yeah yeah, unlimited uh and then from the applicant side we can only rank programs that we interviewed at or is that kind of like what you were saying is you you i I don't know yeah from the applicant side either way you wouldn't want want to to, right Yeah. yeah um so both both parties submit their rank order list mm-hmm. and then there's the match. So do you, how, how does the rank process work yeah. for the program? Let's talk about alphabet soup first. So ERAS, that's E-R-A-S yep. is where you put your application and that's where I review applications and do the interviews from. And yep. That's solely what ERAS's job is, is collating that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, the NRMP, the national resident matching program, I think is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, that's solely responsible for the match. Those two things are two separate companies, two separate entities. They know of each other, but they don't cross talk. (laughs) Right. So it's two separate things. So, um, Eris's applications, the NRMP is the match. Yeah. So as far as ranking goes, so we were kind of talking about that earlier. The NRMP is totally and completely weighted to the student, not the programs. Mm-hmm. There's a really cool video on the NRMP website that you ought to go look at if you're interested in how the match yeah. works. There's like a little cartoon. It's a cartoon. Like four it's pretty people cool. Who yeah. rank like three programs? Yeah, or so. yeah. It's I've, I've cool. seen it, but uh, maybe I can. I'll I link, would link to it in the show notes. I would totally link to yeah. that, and I would recommend. That I think every student ought to understand how the NRMP works. Yeah. Um, I didn't care as much about that when I was, you know, like I said, just a faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. We interviewed people. My program director did a rank list and people matched here. Yeah. You know, now I am the program director. I, I really kind of was more curious about how does this actually work? Yeah. So totally, uh, weighted towards the student. Mm-hmm. Um, like we were talking about earlier, you can rank as many or as few programs as you want. Realize if you only rank one program and you don't match there, you're now unmatched. So it's probably in your best interest to rank multiple programs. Yeah. Um, you can talk with programs about, hey, you're my you're my number one guy. Right. Uh, you're my number one program. My you're in my top number. You can say things like that. 
Um, I would not be deceptive in that though. I'd be very cautious mm-hmm. and don't try to deceive programs. Yeah. Uh, what I appreciated last year was a couple of, I would reach out and say, Hey, um, to like our top 40 folks, I really felt like we had a good interview. I really feel like you'd fit in well here. I would love to work with you for the next three years. Mm-hmm. And that would be the end of what I would say. I can't say things like you're our number one. Mm-hmm. You're in our top 10. Yeah. It gets a little sketchy when we when we say things like, we've ranked you so that you'll match here. You know, wink, wink <laughs> right, kind of yeah. things. Okay. You, you really, as a program, you can't, you, you cannot say we're ranking you number one. We're ranking you in our top 10. We can't say things like that. That's actually illegal. It's a match violation. Okay. You, however, can say things like that. I would be maybe a little cautious about it. Yeah. But be honest in your communication with the programs too, I think, if you're going to have communication. Right. We also talked earlier about I would not rank a program that you do not want to go to mm-hmm. because you could end up there. Um, and so if it's your seventh or eighth program and you want to put 10 programs on there because you want to make sure you match somewhere, uh, again, it's weighted towards you. Um, and it's possible you could match at one of those programs if you're like, yeah, it's definitely not in my top five, but I could see myself here. I'm okay with that program. Rank it. Fine. Mm-hmm. If it's somewhere you're like, I don't fit in there. I don't like what they're doing. I don't think I'm going to get the kind of training I want. Don't rank those programs. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I know there's definitely a, a scarcity a mindset from the, the student side of things. Um, basically, people, uh, I've heard that philosophy before, don't rank somewhere you don't want to be. And that's easy enough, right? Except for you kind of in general, you do want to match <laughs> with a program rather than not match. And so, you know, part of me says, you're absolutely right, Dr. Sundermeyer, good advice. But then the other part of me says, well, I'd much rather match than uh, not match, because uh, that would just be a, a more difficult road. But obviously, I'd, I don't want to be miserable for some number of years, three years of my right. life. Yeah. How bad is that? I don't want to go to that program. Is it again, like I said, yeah, I, I could work there, you know, and I could work with those people then rank it. Yeah. But if it's, I would not want to go to that city. I would not want to go to that program. It might be better for you to do the soap process than, um, than match at a program that you don't want to go to. Mm-hmm. Does, does that make sense? Totally. So it's two different uh, philosophies. Yeah. It's yeah, I'm going to rank a ton of programs and I'll just go where I get picked or I want to go where I want to go. And if I don't get picked, I'll soap. Yeah. Two and different Mikey, philosophies. Yeah. You were saying that it's heavily w- the the algorithm, although it's nobody knows the algorithm. Completely weighted, but it's weighted towards the applicant's preferences. Absolutely. Uh, so, take you know, I guess you're saying keep that in mind when you're ranking the programs. You might accidentally get to a uh, match with a program that you didn't really want to be in, and were lower down your rank order list. But that's how it happened. They got shot to the top uh, because of how the algorithm, the the mysterious algorithm in the sky, works. Uh, and so other aspects of strategizing how you're going to rank programs, you're like, well, what if I'm, that's my number one, but I don't think they're going to rank me number one. Or that's my, you know, number two, but I think they will rank me number one. So I'm going to go with them on top and then, you know, flip them. But you're, you're basically giving me the idea that that is not the strongest uh, strategy to, to take in this no. process because you should just do what you want to do. You do should rank. You yeah. In the order of your preference, yeah. that's why it's called a uh, rank order list. That's exactly right. It matters a little bit more for me how I rank people, but it should matter less for you because if you don't end up rank, you know, going to your number one program, that's okay. You're gonna, 
then the algorithm's got to be your number two program, your number three program. Yeah. Um, and that that's okay. Yeah. The whole, I don't think they're going to rank me in their top, t- you know, whatever. I don't think you should think that way. It's, yeah. I want to go to that program, I rank them number one. I want to go to that program number two, that one's number three. This is my fourth preference. Yeah. Is it geography? Maybe that's important for you. Is it being near your family? Maybe that's important for you. Is it staying in the same school, the same town you did med school in? Is it the programmatic stuff? Mm-hmm. So all those things should factor into how you rank programs. Yeah, but overall, it's really reassuring that you're saying just go with your heart here. But at, go watch that yeah. video too. It really is, I think, eye-opening to see. Okay. It truly is. Yeah, it's um, simple and, and very uh, comprehensible. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's yeah. amazing how they 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 made it very simple to understand. Yeah, it's nice. I think my my mom watched it and was like, "Oh, I get it now." <laughs> so that's good. Uh, shout out to my mom. Um, is there anything that you would change about the matching process or just the whole application process? I guess we kind of talked about a number of elements, the virtualness of it all. Um, is there anything that you would change if you had a magic wand or, uh, or just were king of the world? It's hard because it's, it's kind of like folding a deck of cards, um, in that you've got the programs on one side i wish i had a deck of cards in front of me. i could <laughs> flip them right now okay you got the programs on one side and you got the students on one side and you've got thousands of programs you got thousands of students and we need to you know tens of thousands of students thousands of programs and we need to make all those people uh go to the right place if it was a free-for-all can you imagine how that would be yeah i guess i, yeah. I, I can't imagine that you know that to get thousands and thousands of applications and not have some kind of program and for me to just Make a phone call. Hey, you're my number one guy. Do you want to come here? No, I'm waiting for this other program. Oh, wait, they didn't get an offer. They didn't offer me one. So yeah, I do want to come to your program. Oh, we, we already offered that to somebody else. Yeah. If it was a free for all. Yeah, a lot of back and forth. Th- there would be so much. It would be, yeah. Impossible. So in my mind, yeah. it's bordering on impossible. Yeah. Especially for smaller or maybe some more rural programs or things like that. Mm-hmm. Bigger, uh, more you know robust programs, more popular programs. It wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah. You know, there were two sides of this NRMP thing. You want to hit that now? Sure. The program yeah. side? Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so I was going to mention, so for me, um, ranking is less about where do I think they're going to rank? Where do I think they're going to rank us? And more, who do I want to have come here? And it's it's a little hard. Um, I've met 80 people, 88 people, however many people we interviewed. And it, it's kind of hard sometimes to be like, well, I want this person more than this person. Um, that's hard again, as a, as a humble person, as a personal person, as a relational person, that's hard for me to do personally, but you have to, Yeah. you know, Uh, at the end of the day, the top eight people on our list, if they rank us number one, they are coming here. Yeah. And so for us, the top eight is really important. Mm -hmm. Those are the people who are protected. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. From a program perspective. Um, if they also wanted to come there, bam, perfect match. If they ranked us number one, yeah, it's a perfect match. Yeah. I mean, they're coming. They are coming here. Yeah. Um, it's uh, There's not a lot of science to it. We'd like to add as much science to it as we can, but it's probably more art. Again, I see this as a relational thing. Yeah. Um, we also talked about, as you're interviewing, um, I wanted to at least mention, for the students at least, things that residencies can't ask. So if you hear these things, it should be kind of a little bit of a red flag. So things that we can't ask. 
do you intend to rank our program? Mm -hmm. What did you like about other programs? How are you planning to rank other programs? Do you plan to have children? Have you applied to other programs in our region? I mean, those are pro those are things that we cannot ask. Mm -hmm. uh, and I try to make sure I educate my faculty and residents on, hey, make sure right. you know what you can and can't ask. Those are match violations. Those are match violations. If yeah. you ask so that you during the interview things. or any other time, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So if on Eris you've talked about your children, mm -hmm. it's fair game. Yeah. I, I care a lot. I mean, I really want to know, you know, we uh, have multiple residents, many residents with children, and I'm fine with that. I'm not going to ask you, though, male or female, are you planning to have kids and what's your plans and things like that. Uh, but if you've already brought it up, you know, hey, um, what does this look like for you? Um, if you've already mentioned I'm pregnant right now, you've already opened that can of worms. Yeah, you're bringing it, it means, up. It means yeah. that you're okay talking about it. it really is what that means. Yeah. It really should have no bearing on whether you matched a place or not. Mm -hmm. Whether you have kids, whether you intend to have kids, whether you're pregnant right now, things like that shouldn't have no bearing on whether you match or not. Yeah. If you want to talk about it, fine. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm going to be guy anyway. Love doing this stuff. Um, we have lots of kids in our residency and, you know, I'm happy to talk about it if it's something you want to talk about. Right. There's also another, like a, another nine things, kind of things that we try to avoid. Mm -hmm. So. Looking at things like age and not asking questions about age, gender, sexual orientation, religion, politics. We try to kind of steer clear of those things. Marital status and family plans maybe kind of goes along with the kids. Mm -hmm. um, veteran status. If you've brought it up already, me as an Air Force guy, as a retired Air Force guy, I, I want to talk about that. I want to sure. talk about your experiences and stuff. Yeah. For me, that's actually, it's a plus for you. Yeah. Um, your veteran status. But I'm not going to actually go and ask about it. Disabilities arrests, convictions, and then again, the, the what other programs are you interviewing at and ranking and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, as a Colorado uh, program director, we have 10 programs here as CAFMER, Colorado Association of Family Medicine Residencies. Mm -hmm. We recruit as a group, um, and we're in Colorado, so we actually don't have a really hard time filling here. Popular place. Popular yeah. place to come. Um I, I don't mind telling you, hey, hopefully you've interviewed at a couple other Colorado residencies. You've talked about an interest in this. This other program is really strong in this, too. You should interview there. Yeah. I'm not asking you whether you should, and I will make sure you understand, hey, I don't want to know if you've interviewed there, but I'm telling you you should. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you the program director's name and things like that. You should talk to this person. Yeah. You should talk to this program because they're really good at that, too. Yeah. Cool. Or if it's something we're weak in, hey, you want to check out this program. Yeah, it's good to know the rules of the game basically before you before you enter. I think it's really important. Yeah, because otherwise something, you know, might put you in um in a compromising situation and that's no way to go uh, along with the interview or or just the whole process. Um were there a couple more that you had in mind that you wanted to No, that mention? was it. I pulled up my list. Okay. Cool. Well, that's yeah, those are good to know and good to think about and sometimes I, I think that some of those are mentioned, but it's good to hear them all in one place. Mm -hmm. Um Let's see. Had a couple other questions. Is there anything else you wanted to add about just the application process before we kind of uh, get into transitioning from med student to resident? No, I think that I think we exhausted. Yeah, I think I, I think we uh, did a pretty <laughs> thorough job there too. Um, okay, well then, yeah. So after the match, you've matched with some program. Fantastic! Congratulations. Now, what you said? You said that from your perspective. The 
Um, the onboarding process starts real early in post match yeah. in the post match era in your life. So, yeah. so how does that work? And then, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. So the you the match happens the middle week of March every year. Yeah. We start onboarding the next week. Mm-hmm. Actually, the eight residents we match, we start sending out welcome emails. I do a personal phone call at ten o one or ten o two or ten o five, whichever order you fall in, and I call you. Nice. As soon as I can tell you that you matched here. You know, hopefully you're, you know, you have some cool thing with your med school, but I make personal phone calls. Awesome. Um, but Julie starts sending out an email either that day or Monday. Uh, and we're starting the onboarding process there actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's making sure you can get credential at the hospital and everything you need to know about the residency and, 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 and getting all that stuff squared away before July 1st. Mm-hmm. Sounds like there's a lot to do from the from the uh, re- the on yep. incoming resident side of things. And it's mostly it's it's ACGM stuff, but it's really probably more hospital stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, what else goes on? What what else is uh, some of the things that you look for um, a resident to be doing to set themselves up, or a future resident to set themselves up for uh, that first day or that first year? Yeah. I think after the match, I think you need to let your hair down. Okay. I think you need to go on a vacation. Yeah. Um, fourth year of med school is always a little bit lighter anyway. First, obviously, first two years you're drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. You're working your butt off during third year as you're learning those core, you know, core rotations. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you're taking a little time off in fourth year, and then especially after the match, the best thing you could do is do something for yourself. Do some vacation. Do some time away. I know uh, we mentioned earlier all the debt, so maybe that would make vacation hard. Whatever you can yeah. do, take some time off. Yeah. Take some vacation. Have some me time. Uh, I ran a marathon during that year. I trained for and ran a marathon with my first marathon during fourth year because, nice. again, that was that time when I had more time to do it. Yeah. It seemed like a good time. I don't know if it was a good idea, but <laughs> it seemed like a good time. How'd it go? I finished. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but do something for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, read books. Uh, I had not read anything non-medical uh, during my four years, my first three years of med school, and picked up a couple books. Yeah, good time to get back into things that you like doing. If it's piano or violin, hiking, again vacationing, whatever it is, get back into uh, what makes you you mm-hmm. during that last couple months. Because um, intern year is hard, regardless of what you do, where you go. Intern year is hard. Yeah, that transition that you've kind of alluded to. Right. Um, yeah, I know one of my instincts is to do exactly what you were just talking about. And another instinct that I'm sure is within everybody is, wow, intern year is going to be really hard. I should start studying up and, and watch a bunch of videos and hit the textbooks. Yeah. Uh, I don't think you need to do that necessarily. Yeah. So let's think the like, if you're going into OBGYN, mm-hmm. you should probably bone up on, um, delivering a baby and some of the emergencies and surgery and things like that. If you're going to general surgery, you should really bone up before you start on tying knots and instruments and doing maybe doing some of those mm-hmm. very basic core things. You don't have to spend a lot of time doing that. That's repetitive stuff. For medicine, family medicine, things like that, um, you're going to be drinking from a fire hose again yeah. for the first year. Mm-hmm. You know what? Take a little break. It's okay. Yeah. You'll get it. You'll get it. Yeah. yeah that's uh, that's what basically I've heard from everybody who's who's gone through it is no matter what, you could study every <laughs> so day true. for the, for the last so couple months true. of, of, of so fourth dumb. year. So, and you're yeah. still going to struggle and, yeah. but get through it eventually. Yeah. Um, cool. So what, uh, are there any other, um, 
things that you would recommend during that that time, not just the letting your hair down or turning your brain off a little bit, uh, getting to the things that you want to do in life? Are there any good resources to set yourself up with for when time comes um, to actually be a resident? I, I don't think so. You know, we kind of talked if you're going into some of those uh, specialties, you know, get, get good at a couple of those things. Yeah. Um, internship will do its its thing. Mm-hmm. It will be there. You will do your thing. You're going to learn. Yeah. It's a good time to, to relax. Yeah. Um, great. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because you've been so generous with it. Um, I really do appreciate you carving out uh, so much time with uh, me and my podcast listeners. Um, you know, during this kind of chaotic, hectic time in uh, the residency application process, um, you have some papers in front of you. Did you want to uh, address some of those things? Yeah, real quick, wanted to say uh, I actually this year with the COVID um, really affecting the third and fourth year rotations mm-hmm. uh, for students. Um, I think it came out from the ACGM, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but there was a survey that they recommended, and I actually sent that to all the of our incoming interns. And here are some of the questions that we asked. Um, and I had each intern, new intern, answer all these questions, and it really helped me design our July orientation month around. Did I see common themes of things that res that the incoming residents missed during their med school education? So it was things like, which educational experience or experiences in med school were most disrupted? Did the pandemic cause you to miss any of your clerkships or electives? If yes, which ones? Which is really good to know. Um, which clinical experiences were virtual versus clinical? And in, in the, uh, the big discussion is, were this year's interns going to be ready to touch patients? Mm-hmm. Because in third year, you know, traditionally in first two years, you didn't touch a lot of patients. Mm-hmm. If, uh, you know. I think that's kind of changed a lot in med school in the last couple of, in the last, you know, decade or so. Only slightly, I think. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah. we didn't touch patients at all in my first two years. It was kind of like watching that movie Patch Adams, if you've seen that. <laughs> it's of, been a while, but yeah, yeah. Where you don't touch patients in the first two years, and then you touch patients when you're a third year. And then you really hone that as a, as a fourth year. Mm-hmm. But you guys have missed that. Um, both the current intern class and your class specifically have missed a lot of those experiences. Mm-hmm. And is, are you guys going to be ready to touch patients mm-hmm. as ready as past years have been? And do we need to supplement that? Um, and, and that's kind of what we did okay. uh, this year. Uh, other questions. Uh, were there procedures that you believe you missed out on that you should have had? Um, and then uh, one of the questions that I think was universally answered, yes, how confident are you in your ability to look up evidence-based recommendations, you know, which I think most schools do a pretty good job or you kind of pick up on your, your rotations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Um, and that was designed specifically because COVID disrupted the whole medical education yeah, process. Exactly. Yeah, Um that makes sense, and that definitely ties into the transition from student to first-year resident. Um, yeah, I feel pretty lucky in, in just personally that I didn't really have that much of a disruption in my third- and fourth-year rotations. Um, I know a lot of people who did, who missed out on entire rotations or just had a crappy rotation yeah. because of it. Um, all sorts of different scenarios, but... Uh, you know, so I guess a lot of different people around the country had a lot of different experiences in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, I really do appreciate your time. So we can uh, we can land the plane. But uh, if you have any other advice for uh, the family med or uh, primary care listeners, um, you know, especially the the ones who are probably listening to this or med students looking to be through the application trail here. I think um, I think genuineness. You know, I, I've said it multiple times, but yeah. I, I think it kind of goes back to that: um, the personality piece, the genuineness. Um, yeah, and be genuine and sell yourself. Yeah, cool. Two things we talked about today. Um, I always hated the be yourself. Uh, you know, uh, you noticed I didn't piece, say that. No, you didn't. No, I very I, intentional. And I think about that as instead of being yourself, just be loose. Yeah. What you know, as long as you're not tight and be and, professional, uh, and uh, be yourself, genuine. You know, like you said, but be professional and be genuine. Yeah. Yeah. Here's who I am. Cool. I love it. All right. Thanks a lot, Dr. Sundermeyer. Yeah. All Thanks, right. Ross. Appreciate you having me on. All right. Informative discussion with Dr. Sundermeyer. It was a long episode, but a good one, I thought. If you made it to the end, you are a true fan, and great things will definitely come your way soon. And that sounded like a horoscope or something, so that's my cue to get out of here. So enough of me. Please check out the show notes and the links in the podcast player app for those videos that we talked about. Leave a comment or a review for the show, and thank you for listening. Better just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Pizzazz. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though, friends were formed to fight mutual rivals Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love Bringing joy into their lives, boom, they were civilized Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne Built empires and the story's well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be, learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job, now it's showing up I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you, lovely and smooth You quickly removed my modern man's blues I wanna celebrate every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold Body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasins? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road, going inch by inch. Don't sprint, take it slow, protect your soul. Travel long and far, but make sure to come home, cause the love that's here is what keeps you going. 
gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so beneath Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchange is contained in the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.